thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Connect Church. What a powerful song. What a what an incredible time of worship. And here's, here's our heartbeat that it, every time we gather together, that we would speak the name, that we would shout the name, that we would worship the very name and the person of Jesus. And that is why we gather together to make much of him. And so thank you for being with us. If, if you're visiting this morning, you have honored us by coming and being a part. And we pray this, that the Lord would absolutely bless you today. So thank you for coming and being a part. Now, growing up, my family and I, we were, we were Catholics. Now, we weren't uh, very much practicing Catholics, but we were Catholics nonetheless. Any Catholics in the house from your past? Hey, there's several of you. Now, part of the Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments of the church. And there was one sacrament, one practice in particular, that always made me nervous and terrified. And I remember this even as a young boy. And that was confession. Y'all Catholics know exactly what I'm talking about. You'd schedule a time on the calendar with the priest. You'd go into this room and he was sitting in a chair and you had two options. You can sit in front of the priest or you could hide behind a wall. Every time I went to confession, you ready? I did the wall thing. Man, I was like this. And you had, you had some words you had to say every time to the priest. And it was this. You'd get in there and you go, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been X number of days, and, and I always lied there. Uh, it's, been, it's been this many days since I, I've been to confession. And when I got in there, I was kind of a younger guy, and so my voice was really still high, really higher than it is now. And I would try to mask it. Forgive me, Father. Right. And then you would sit there, and you were supposed to tell him all of your sins. I would go in there and go, you know, Father, I, just, I guess one of my biggest sins is caring too much, you know. And, and I'd walk through. I would never give him the juicy stuff. I'd never give him the really bad stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden, he would give you some, some Hail Marys and some Our Fathers to pray. And, and then he'd give you maybe some penance that you would do to kind of make up for the sin you did. And, and, man, I spent a whole lot of years terrified going as sporadically as possible because I just struggled confessing my sins to my priest. But today, we are going to begin to see the beauty in Nehemiah chapter 9 of what confession is as God designed it to be. We're going to see confession break out among all of the people. Last week, we attended a revival meeting by the water gate in the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah had rebuilt the broken walls of Jerusalem, and now he was tasked with rebuilding a broken people. The ghost town that once was Jerusalem by Nehemiah chapter 9 is now teeming with life. As Ezra and the Levites began to read the word of God out loud for six hours in chapter 8, the word of God began accomplishing three things. You ready? Number one, it accomplished this. It led the people to worship. Number two, it gave them great joy. And number three, 
it exposed their sin. And towards the end of Nehemiah chapter 8, something peculiar happened that we didn't even have time to get into last week. That peculiarness happened at the water gates when the people were reading the law of God and they realized they were just two weeks out from the Feast of Tabernacles. They had enough time, many of them for the first time, to obey the Word of God and to celebrate this feast together. Amazing to me that upon hearing the Word of God, they obeyed. No hesitance, no no deliberation, no excuses, no putting it off. They simply obeyed the Word of God. And it's a reminder to us today, church, that delayed obedience really is just disobedience to God. Delayed obedience has always been, in itself, in its simplistic form, disobedience to God. It's a reminder to us that now is the time to obey the Lord, not later. Well, back to this feast. The festival is known as the the Festival of the Tabernacle. It was the seventh and final feast in the Jewish calendar. One of three feasts that Jewish men were required, if they could, to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. You know, I want to say this about God. If you study the Old Testament much, you're going to know this, that God knew how to throw a party. God knew how to throw a celebration, a festival, and a feast. And that's what we find them looking towards today. It was time for the people to leave the comforts of their home in this feast and to celebrate how God took so great care of them as they wandered in the wilderness. And so what they would do is they would leave their homes for a week and they would set up camp. Hey, Jimbo, Mandy, Austin, I got to thinking a little bit studying this, that literally what is happening around us right now is a 21st century look at what the Feast of the Tabernacles, albeit a little nicer, probably a little more comforts of home, but happening all around us right now is what it will look like in the 21st century to celebrate this feast where you leave your home and you camp out and you celebrate the goodness of God. You see, the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was just that. A celebration of how God can and how God will deliver his people from the bondage, the slavery of sin. Now it's here in chapter 9 that we find yet again the people of God gathered two days after this joyous festival of the tabernacles is over. Coming clean about their sin. They're fessing up to their sin. They're allowing God to do business with their sin. But I wonder if this timing is coincidental. Here they have this joyous celebration, and now we find that they're grieving. Is it coincidental? And I would say to that, no. Because here's what we know. Joy is both short-lived and elusive in our lives when sin is alive and active in our hearts. When sin is alive and active in your heart and mind, joy is always short-lived and elusive. Well, we find ourselves. The Feast of the Tabernacles is concluded on the 22nd of the month, and we find ourselves at the 24th of the month in Nehemiah chapter 9. And here's what the Bible says. So I turned my little remote here on. That on the 24th day of the same month, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, the Israelites gathered together. Now, we'll come back to this. They were fasting and wearing sackcloth, putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descendant had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and watched this. 
They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Hey, what a day. Yet again, six hours. Three of it they stood reading the word of God. In the back half of their day, they took another three hours worshiping the Lord and confessing their sins. Now listen, I think of somebody like my wife, and probably her confession time would have been about two minutes, and most of that would have been just me, right? Just confessing the Lord me. Man, some of us need about three hours to go through that list, and I'm probably on the top of those. For three hours, can you imagine confessing their sin? Well, verse 1 tells us that the people took to fasting, which is the denying themselves of food to gain a, a greater desire for God. They took to wearing sackcloth, which was... Black goat hair that was coarse and uncomfortable that they would put on their body. And it says that they started throwing dust on their head. Man, you and I walk up on that. We're like, they need some help. Really what they're doing is they're showing on the outside how broken and how grieved they were about the sin on the inside. Following these verses... We have the longest recorded prayer in the Bible outside of Psalms. I wish you would go back and read it. A prayer that celebrated the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful, undeserving, and unworthy people. Hey, by the way, I find myself in that lot as well. I find myself in that grouping of people. Those who times are unfaithful to the Lord who are undeserving of him and unworthy. I'll be honest with you, I think most of us might fit there. I had a prayer that was centered on confessing their sin. And here's the, here's the sad truth today, that we find ourselves in, in the church in America where few experience a Nehemiah chapter 9 in our own lives. We live in a day where people aren't broken by sin anymore. We live in a, a culture that celebrates sin and even ridicules the very notion that there is sin or that sin is morally wrong. I'm afraid of this, that so many believers operate under this sentiment. You ready? Yes, I know it is wrong. I know it is sin, but God loves me and he has to forgive me. And how dangerous, ungodly, of a mindset that is. In fact, God responds to such, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, to such an attitude by saying, how long will this people provoke me? Oftentimes we're guilty of cultural sin. The idea that everybody is doing it, so it must be okay. And we know this truth, don't we, from the Word of God, that wrong is wrong even if everyone's doing it, and right is right, is right even if no one's doing it. And yet we find ourselves trapped in cultural sin. You know what it's time for, church? It's time for chapter 9 in each of our lives to come clean about our sin. It's time that we fess up about our sin, and it's time that we allow God to do business with the sin in our lives. And the, the warning goes out, and the caution goes out, and the plea goes out from the author of Hebrews. 
And he says this in Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts to the very sin in your heart and your life. I was reading up of a story an old pastor told. And he told the story of a group of trappers who would trap animals in, in Africa and send them to zoos in America. And they say this, that one of the hardest animals to trap is this guy right here, a ring-tailed monkey. We see them all over our zoos. They're one of the hardest animals to trap. But for the Zulus of the continent, it's pretty simple to catch these guys. They've been catching this little animal with ease for years. And let me share with you the method that the Zulus knew because they knew the nature of this animal. How do you catch them? It's no more complex than growing melon on a vine. You see, what they would do is they would take the favorite melon of that little monkey. They'd see it growing there on the vine, and when it got just to, the, to, the, to its ripe state, they would cut a hole in that melon just big enough for that monkey to stick its hand in there. And what that monkey would begin to do is it would begin to grab all the seeds, man, its favorite part. It would collect as many seeds as it could in its hand, and then it would try to bring his hand out of that, out of that melon, and guess what? Because of all the seeds in his hand, he couldn't get it out. And the trappers would say this monkey would begin to fight and to tug. It would screech. It would begin to whine, but it would never let go of the seeds. And that melon was its trap. And it would dance around and it would fight and it would fight until all the Zulus had to do was walk up to it and capture it. And then that monkey was theirs. You see, it just wouldn't give up what it wanted. Just couldn't let go of the seed. And you know, I got to thinking, this is a great picture of our relationship with sin. And there is a trap set for each of us, for all of us, a trap called sin. And here's where sin gets its power, you ready? By persuading us that we would be happier with it than we would with God. You see, that's how sin and temptation works. That's its power. It's the promise, and albeit the lie, that that sin, those seeds, would make us happier. To the alcoholic, you'll be happier with just one more drink. To the glutton, you'll be happier with just one more indulgence. To the proud, all you need is one more accolade, one more spotlight on you, and you'll be happier. To the addict, you'll be happier with one more pill or one more hit. To the adulterer, oh, you'll be happy with just someone else, so long as it's not your husband or wife. To the porn addict, you'll be happier with just one more image, one more video. To the gaming addict, you'll be happy with just one more game. One more hour to the unmarried couple. You'll be happier just living together, sleeping together outside of God's design. To those who struggle with their God-given gender, just change your gender and you'll be happier. To those who have same-sex attraction, just give in to your desire and you'll be happier. 
to the materialist. You'll be happier with just one more purchase, one more thing. To the greedy, hey, you'll be happier with just one more dollar. To the gossip, you'll be happier with just one more conversation behind someone's back. To the liar, you'll be happier just telling one more lie. To the drama king or queen, just a little more drama will make you happier. To the sinner, just a little more sin will make you happier. And all of a sudden, we find that our hands are filled and we are trapped. We take hold of that seed and that sin. And that sin and that seed takes hold of us. And as long as we refuse to let it go, it traps us and the enemy captures us and sin begins to destroy us. I love this in Proverbs 8:36. But he who sins against me, says the Lord, watch this, you wrong your own soul. You wrong your own soul. There's a tagline that came out decades ago, and it's used by so many churches. It began in New Spring Church in South Carolina. And here's the tagline. You ready? It's okay not to be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. And man, churches have been using that line for years. In a sense, it's not okay to stay not okay. In the conversation of sin, church, it is not okay to remain in sin to continue in rebellion, or to stay in disobedience to Christ and His Word. Yet the good news is, as we see in in chapter 9, as we see in Jesus, the good news is that God has a remedy for us and our sin, and Christ, and through confession. I'd heard my brother preach on confession before, and asked him if I could use this. And listen to what he says about confession. He said this, that confession is the coming together of, watch this, ownership. If you're taking notes, write that word down. It's it's ownership. It's taking responsibility without excusing or blaming sin away. I'm going to tell you, church, we ought to start taking ownership of our sin. He says this, that it's also the coming together of honesty, That it's time that we shine the light of truth onto our souls, bringing to the surface all sin and all rebellion before God. We've got to be honest about the sin in our lives. And he says this, the last thing we need is urgency. Is urgency. That sin is no small matter. It is enormous and expensive enough that it costs Jesus his very life so that our sins may be dealt with by God. And do you know three things that I think are missing in most believers' lives? Ownership of sin. Honesty about our sin. And an urgency to rid our very hearts and lives of sin. You see, the people in Nehemiah chapter 9, as you read the chapter, you are going to find that they have all three, that ownership and that honesty and that urgency. And you know what it left them? It left them to grieving 
over their sin. Hey, let, let, me, let me ask you, when was the last time you grieved over the sin in your life? When was the last time it broke your heart? We see that it does here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now we begin to ask the question because we throw it around in church as if everybody was raised in church, they know what it means, but what is sin? Anthony, you're talking about sin, you're preaching on sin, but, but what is it? I'm going to give you my favorite definition. It's in the Greek language. Here's what it looks like in the Greek. They have such a beautiful way of writing their language, but it's hamartia. It's oftentimes translated sin, and it means this, you ready? It means that we have missed the mark. It was used back in the day of Jesus to speak of such games as archery or, or throwing spears. And it means there's a bullseye that you're aiming for, but somehow you have missed that bullseye. You have missed that mark, and sin is missing the mark. You say, well, what is the mark? But we know this, that the mark is God. It's His holiness. It's His sinlessness. And it's the goodness of God. And I'm going to tell you what we're really good at. We're really good at comparing ourselves and our sins against other people and their sins, coming out looking pretty good. But when you and I stop for a minute and we compare ourselves to God, I'm going to tell you something. We've missed the mark. We have fallen short, Romans teaches us, of the glory of God. And maybe, just maybe, we need to stop comparing ourselves and our sins against other people. And maybe we should compare it to God. And I stand before you today as someone who has missed the mark. I am a sinner. Yet Jesus changed my story. There are two types of sins, two flavors of sins, if you will, that we find ourselves most entangled in, most engaged in. The first one is this, the sin of omission. James chapter 4, verse 17 says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Doesn't mean necessarily we're making this willful, conscious decision to sin, except for there are right things that we ought to be doing in Christ, and we simply just don't do it. That's the sin of omission. And, and I'll, be, I'll be pretty straightforward with you that I believe the sin of omission is one of the most prevalent sins in the life of the church. We know the right things to do, we simply just don't do it. That's one flavor of sin. And then there's this flavor of sin, you ready? And that is the sin of commission. Or commission. And that is the sin where we take action to sin in our thoughts, in our, in our words, and in our deeds. For instance, let's talk about the sin of commission that kicked it all off. We find ourselves in the garden in the early parts of Genesis. Adam and Eve are told, look, you can eat of any tree. Don't you touch that one in the middle of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't you eat from that. And yet both Adam and Eve committed sin. They took action to eat from a tree, thus rebelling against God and His Word, and sin was thrust on all of us. Hey, by the way, we've been eating of that tree ever since. The sins of omission and commission. And both of these sins 
as read out in Nehemiah chapter 9, left the people grieving before God. And yet, here's the good news of the story. is that God met their grieving with His grace. That God meets the grieving over our sin with His grace. And we see that no greater than with Jesus. Ezra would point out in this long prayer a couple of things about the character of God. In the midst of the unfaithfulness, the undeserving, the unworthy people, he would say, but you are a God, watch this, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. And speaking of rebellion of the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses, watch this, Ezra would say, nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Church, hear me. God must and God will always punish sin. But boy, does he love pardoning, forgiving, and saving sinners. Just like you and me. Hey, by the way, God did do business with our sin. Look at this in 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And watch this. Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hey, can I parrot the phrase that with for you real quick? Hey, in your grieving about your sin, God met you there with his grace. His son, Jesus. The cross, and three days later, an empty grave. I love this. As God did business with our sin through Jesus, comes the challenge of you and I that it is time that we begin to come clean and to fess up. To our sin. And, and that is why God gifts us with confession, not necessarily before a priest, but before God Himself, like we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. I often reference this, but I want to show this to you. In 1 John 1 9, John writes that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And watch this to clean us up, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a word here, confess. Oftentimes I mention this in our Lord's Supper time. But here's what it looks like in the Greek language. And it's the word homologia. Homologia. And literally that word means this. To speak the same as. And so when it comes to our sin, what this passage is teaching us, it's not just us listing off a bunch of sins that God has to forgive and has to love us through. It's this idea that we take every sin, even those we categorize as small And we lay them out before the Lord and we speak the same as God does about those sins. We see those sins as God sees them. We're broken over our sin as our sin has broken the very heart of God. And so confession is more than just here's a list. You have to love me and forgive me. Let's go on. It's more than that. It is seeing our sin as God sees it. And that's what happened in Nehemiah chapter 9. And the people were left grieving. And there God met them with his grace. He met them with with his grace. 
And I want to say this, with confession of sin, there comes and always comes the next step, which is the command and the challenge of Jesus that we find in John chapter 8. I, I thought I put this in. This was a little bit late edition this morning, so let me read it to you. In John chapter 8, verse 11, we find this, that the men have brought out this woman who's caught, caught in sin. She'd been caught in the act of adultery. I don't know where the dude is. They bring the woman out. They raise up stones to kill her. Jesus is there. And in a sense, he shames the crowd saying, hey, any of y'all about sin, throw it first. Chunk that rock down the way. All of them begin to drop stones. They walk away. And he looks to that woman, and he gives her his forgiveness. And that's where most of us want to stop. God has to love me. He has to forgive me. But listen to the command of Jesus. Go and sin no more. We love his forgiveness. We don't want to finish out that verse. When we confess our sins before God, when we speak the same, when we see our sin as God sees it, there's a next step, and that is the call and the challenge of Jesus. Hey, believer, go and sin no more. And that is the picture of repentance that always follows confession in the Word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 10, you know what the people of God do? They leave this grieving where God meets them with His grace, and they start signing covenants and commitments to God to obey His Word and to go and sin no more. To go and, and sin no more. Max Lucado shares a pretty powerful story, and I'm going to read this because, in all honesty, I don't have the vocabulary, the language, or even the storytelling ability he does. But if you've got about two and a half paragraphs in you, I promise you, you don't want to miss this. Max Lucado writes a story of a young girl from Brazil who wanted to see the world, discontent with a home only having a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. And so one morning early, before her mom got up, she slipped away. And Maria, her mother's heart, was broken in two. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed her stuff to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore for one last thing, pictures. She sat in a photo booth, closed the curtain, and spent her very last bit of money on all the pictures she could buy of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to the city. Maria knew her daughter Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria the mom began to search the bars and the hotels and the nightclubs in any place in the city with a bad reputation. She went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, 
she wrote a note. Now, it wasn't too long before the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria, the mom, had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. But it would be a few weeks later that young Christina descended a hotel stair. Her face was once young, but now looked tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for a secure pallet in her mom's home. Yet that little village was in too many ways too far away. She reached the bottom of the stairwell. Her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mom. Christina's eyes, they begin to burn and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and she removed the small photo. She looked at the back of that photo and there she saw a compelling invitation. And here's what her mom had wrote. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter Please come home. And you know what? She did. She did. I want you to hear me. In this room, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants you to come home to him, but my sin is too great. You might say, Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Meaning, this that today you can trade your guilt and your grief over your sin, and you can allow God to meet you there. With his grace. But the question is, will you allow him to do so? When was the last time you grieved over sin? When was the last time a Nehemiah chapter 9 type scene scenario played out in your life? And so here, I've got a challenge for you. I need you to clear some calendar room this week. I need you to create some margin in your life. Why? Because here's the deal. You and I both need some Nehemiah chapter 9 this week. We need to take some time and to fess up to our sin. We need some time to confess our sins and to allow the Lord to do business. Hey, by the way, when you set aside that time, don't go it alone. Bring Jesus there with you. Grieve over your sin, but allow God through Christ to meet your grief with His grace. And here's the kicker, you ready? And go and sin no more. And go and sin 
no more. So today, we take ownership. We're not excusing or blaming away our sin. Today, we are honest, allowing God through His Spirit to shed light with His truth on our very souls. And today, there's an urgency that we don't schedule that meeting somewhere down the road. But today, today, we allow Jesus to do some business with the sin in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.